Hello, and welcome to episode two of the R2 Podcast. I'm Running to Places artistic director and founder Joey Steenhagen, and with me once again, the lovely, the talented, the long-suffering resident music director of Running to Places Theatre Company, Jeremy Platter. Hey, hello, Jeremy. hello. It's so good to be here for episode two. Yes, still in our bunkers, hiding <laughs> yeah. out, staying Joey, safe. Joey, what, what have you been up to? How, how are you uh, staying entertained in these times? I Honestly, like, time, what is that word that you use that makes no sense to me at all? It has no meaning to it. It's it's a day of the week ending in Y. That's just about as, as complete an answer as I can You know can what? Give you. That's whatever works for you, man. What about you? What have you been up to, Jeremy? Uh, well, yeah, I've been, uh, I've been recording some songs, you know, Fun. hopefully though people will see those out and about. I've, I've been, uh, finishing up school. We, we've definitely gotten into puzzling has been part of our, Ooh. part of our fun times. Have you, have you, you hit the puzzling puzzles? phase yet? No, I haven't. I got to get myself, uh, some, some puzzles. I keep seeing people posting pictures of puzzles. So my, oh my God, alliteration, my, my girlfriend, Alana, her whole family, very into puzzles and so we've been uh, we do puzzle swaps, right? Once you've done one, you trade it with them, and you you leave it, you know, on the on the yeah, driveway. Yeah. Come soaking back. in bleach, right? Obviously, you know, the only appropriate way. <laughs> of course, then then you go to do the puzzle, and it's just all white pieces. That makes it more challenging, I guess. But at or least much it's easier, actually. That's true. Because they all seem to fit if you push them hard enough. <laughs> A good philosophy for puzzles <laughs> and life. Um, all right. Well, I say we talk about musical theater. What do you I think? I love musical theater, and I think it's a great topic. I love musical theater, too. Uh, you know, one of the things that people frequently ask us about when we're either about to announce a season or, you know, maybe having just is people always want to know why. What, you know, what goes into it? What are the, the things that, that uh, go into the decisions that we pick one show versus another, that we don't pick a specific show? Uh, and I thought maybe we could talk about that today. How do we go about picking shows? Yeah, I uh, conveniently actually just wrote a whole thing about this. Um, it's Because it's one of the most important topics to me personally. And, um, and I, you know, I, I want to keep researching and doing this. So I've actually never shared any of this with you before. So yeah, we're no. going to we're going to chat about this live unfiltered i'm excited pre-recorded i mean we've talked in for like, not just informally like we've we've put this into practice oh yeah uh, no. and so what i'm so excited about is to hear like your formal bullet points your presentation right so i actually broke it into 10 specific criteria oh my gosh to We're go down comfy. uh when you are when you're picking a show um so i'm i'm gonna jump right into them jump right in um first things first uh, what a lot of people who are new to picking shows or new to musical theater in general um, are unfamiliar with the concept of licensing companies. Oh, oh boy. Getting and, right into the fun and exciting parts. <laughs> well, it it can. It, I think the beginning with the licensing companies is, is the fun part. Um, <laughs> well, we're, we're nerds that way. <laughs> we are. Uh, and the reason is because... Um, so every show that exists that one might put on, um, you go to – that show is kind of owned by one of these specific companies. Uh, the big four uh, right now are kind of MTI, r and Tams Whitmark, and the musical company. 
Um, and I think Joey would agree with me that MTI is kind of the gold standard there. They're, they're, at the very least, they're the 800-pound gorilla, even though I would have to say they're a very friendly 800-pound gorilla. But, sure. yeah, you know, 80% of the shows that you can think of are probably managed by MTI. Uh, yeah, but some of the great ones are by the other ones. And so you go on those websites, and honestly, this is how Joey and I start thinking about shows, is you just start scrolling down lists. What's available? And look at those look at those shows and see who owns them and see all that jazz. Um, all that they, jazz. That's Chicago, right? Nailed it. Uh, There's also a, its own show called All That Jazz. But um, uh, a lot of these companies, MTI, RNH, have also specific editions of shows. Uh, the full edition, and then what's called the school edition, uh, which and school is edition for, is specifically for high school. Exactly, and then we also have the junior edition. Middle school. And then R&H has the Getting to Know edition, oh. which is for middle schoolers as well, for any of the shows of Rodgers and Hammerstein on there. Uh, and then MTI also has the Kids edition, perfect for elementary schools. Indeed. So if you're, if you're looking to pick shows, like those are – there's no harm. In fact, a lot of benefit with going for those different editions, school, well, junior – and I think you, you bring up what I think is one of the most important things when we're starting is who are we picking the shows for? 100%. You know, running to places historically is always, uh, you know, once it, per season at least, we carve out a show for the youngest half of the company, you know, um, either grades six through eight in the early days, six through nine uh, in, you know, kind of the second half of our history to make sure that. Uh, the youngest kids are not competing with college-bound seniors at every turn, that they get a chance to be the biggest fish in the pond. Sure. Uh, and so making sure that we've got shows that are appropriate for the youngest half of our company to do. Um, and so, yeah, keeping in mind who we're trying to serve, the greatest number of kids uh, with the greatest number of opportunities. So, yeah. Absolutely. Um, so the first... So once once we get all there and we know we're doing a high school show or a middle school show and... We've checked on these lists. Um, one of the most important things that uh, you and I have talked about um, is is my first question here. Are there lots of different types of roles for different people? Go on. Explain what you mean by that, sir. Um, in a show, you can look at, you know, you got the lead of the show. Maybe you got some supporting leads. Maybe you got some romantic leads, right? But the point is, is when we pick a show... Uh, for for our company and for any high school or community theater, you don't want to show that is just one person the whole time being awesome and Star everybody vehicle. else does terrible stuff, right? Yeah. One of the best examples for this, which is uh, one of your and my favorite shows, is Honk. Oh, oh, I love Honk. Have we talked about that recently? God, I hope so or not, because now <laughs> well, we we're get about to do to it again. again. <laughs> Talk about the characters in Honk, Joey. Why are why why is that such a good? show for for this reason i love honk and i'll talk about it for a hundred years uh besides the fact that it's cleverly written and funny uh and has so much heart but exactly the point you were making there's a wide range of excellent characters at a bunch of different scales so, you know so the ugly duckling honk being the story of the ugly duckling set to music so the main character so-called ugly um is obviously one of the main characters but so is his mother ida and so is the cat who goes around uh you know trying to catch uh and devour this young duckling um 
and there's another cat, and there's another duck that show up later on. Or chicken. She's a chicken, right? Isn't she a chicken? There's a, there's a bunch of different farm animals. There's a bunch of different farm animals is the point that we're trying to make here. Um, you know, there's a great turn for a bullfrog that shows up late in the second act, has a phenomenal song, bippity-boppity-boo, you're done. Um, so, yeah, and, and there's lots of good stuff for kids who are just, if you'll pardon this expression, getting their feet wet um, <laughs> in shows. And so, you know, there's... Uh, the little, you know, the siblings of the Ugly Duckling who've got a couple of great scenes and a couple of great songs and a couple of great lines. Um, you know, there's the turkey who's the school teacher who's got some great stuff to do. So, yeah, lots of stuff for kids who are ready to take on, uh, you know, carrying the weight of a whole big show in a lead and lots of supporting stuff that it's worthwhile. They're all funny and interesting. Uh, and, and that's really important to look for. Right. One of the big... One of the big misnomers in casting and in doing shows that a lot of people, a lot of people who do casting, dare I say, incorrectly get wrong, is it is not the best kids get the big roles. That is just not how casting works. You so are how does finding it work? what do you mean? The, you are finding the right person for the right role. Right, And so when you get a show with a high belter and a low alto and a funny tenor and a, you know, as many different of these types of people as you possibly could imagine, that's when you get the best casting because you might have, and this happens to us all the time, where you have these incredible kids that are just not right for a certain role. It doesn't mean they're worse, it just means that wasn't their role. Yeah, the way that we often talk about it is putting kids in the place where they're going to have the most success, where Absolutely. they're going to end up feeling best about themselves when it's all over. And that's a matter of matching the kid and what they can do with something in the show that where they can be doing that thing. So this brings us really nicely to my second point here. We're only on the second I, point already. Right. And just, and just spoiler alert, I don't think we've got time to go through all 10 point for point. So pick some of your favorites, bud. That's fair. I'll go through more of them quick. Uh, this next point is, uh, do we have the correct talent among the students to pull off the show? The short answer of that is, if you are working in a space where nobody can dance, you can't do Newsies. Ah. That's, you know, when picking shows like that, um, my caveat with that is almost any challenge can be overcome with artistic creativity and open-mindedness. And hard work. And hard work. You know, that essentially means to me that, like, if you have a group of kids that maybe aren't as trained in dance, but you are willing to put in the extra hours to hire the incredible professional choreographer to work with them to get them there, then you can do Newsies. Right. And, uh, you know, we have the benefit of getting to work with people like Tucker Davis and Ms. Harmony Malone doing choreography. And... What the two of them are so exceptionally good at is taking kids who don't see themselves as being dancers when they walk in the door, and by the time they finish with an audition or a rehearsal, they're not necessarily thinking, boy, I'm ready for a professional career in dance, but they're thinking, I had fun. I did that. I could do that again next time. Um, and that just creates uh, an incredible positive feedback loop where then they come back in more excited to try something and learn something and they come out better than they were before. And again, feeling good about it, feeling like they succeeded at it. Absolutely. Uh, one of my next big points with casting, and, and I think this is an important one 
uh, to Joey and I specifically is, does the show have multiple interesting and fully fledged women? Absolutely. If you are working in a community or high school or middle school theater, and you or have professional a theater, theater or professional or theater, theater or anything in theater. I mean, like, if you happen to have more men showing up than women, you should call the people at the Guinness Record Book. <laughs> I mean, it just doesn't happen. And there are so many incredible shows that have these fully-fledged incredible women, right? It's not always just about more women characters, right? It's about these real women characters that get to do things and have real opinions. Hey, what's, what's, uh, what's that test? It's called the Bechtel test. Can you talk about that, Jeremy? Yeah, dude, the Bechtel test, super duper important. Um, the idea of the Bechtel test is does is these questions, and if you answer them, uh, you pass the Bechtel test, which is, are there multiple women who have names who talk to each other and who talk to each other about something that isn't men? Which seems to me like the lowest bar you could possibly imagine, and yet the for number a of shows of that pass it certainly, as you go further back in time, uh, is right. deeply disappointing. And and people sometimes wonder why we choose to do you know some shows and not do other shows. This yeah. is going to be the first reason I give them uh, is you know about um, you know what are the things that the girls who show up to participate in running to places. Are they going to have enough to do? Is it going to be something that we feel good about them doing? Are they going to feel good about it? Are we sending messages to the audience um, about the roles of girls and women in our society as represented in the stories that these shows are telling? Um, the good news is that the trend line is improving. Um, yeah. We would certainly argue that it's not happening quite fast enough um, and, and not... Uh, you know, hardly enough, but the fact is it's improving. Um, but the fact is also that you won't end up doing a season of shows that pass that Bechtel test unless you're thinking about it in advance. Right. You know, as much as, as much as you and I love a lot of these incredible classics, and there are a lot of classics that do pass this, but you know, you just can't, do all these shows where men run the whole story the whole time. My, my favorite example to succeed. is how to succeed in business without really trying, hmm. which I did when I was in high school back in the 1830s. Um, but the <laughs> fact is, I mean, gosh, what a great show. And there's great music and all this stuff. And right. until you yeah. start counting the number of women who are in the show. Right. Um, and then you start thinking about, are we going to feel comfortable and, and proud of having uh, you know, uh, teenage girls and boys singing A Secretary Is Not A Toy, wink. Um, you know, a song where the main female character, Rosemary, sings without an ounce of irony about how she'll be so happy to keep his dinner warm. Um, there's yeah, some why, great songs in that wanna, show, but... Why yeah. do we want to have our students, do, you know, and it's... And as a, you know, both of us, I don't want to surprise anyone here, are men... Um, and I don't really want to just sit there and like put all of, put 16 year old students in these, you know, pencil skirts and say, do a kick line all day. Like it's not just not good. Yeah. So that's always an important factor. Um, it's related to picking shows in the context of who we've got. 
um, but it certainly is a bit, um, you know, more beyond that as well. Sure. Uh, I think the other half of that coin is uh, about racial makeup for the show, which is certainly mm-hmm. something that in Ithaca has been a big topic for the last few years. Um, how, how do we how do we work with that, Joey? Uh, I mean, similar to what we were talking about with making sure that there are roles for women and meaningful characters and stories, um, making sure that we're thinking about telling stories that uh, involve the stories of people of color. Um, Now, the population of the, you know, area that we live in, um, that's not always easy to do. Um, we always do our very best to try to reach out and make sure that we're always sending the message to every kid, especially students of color, that they have a home in running to places in particular and theater and musical theater in general. Um, so sometimes it's a matter of picking shows that kind of overtly uh, send that message. For example, when, when we did The Wiz, which is a historically black show uh, based on how it was produced on Broadway originally, um, to, you know, casting students who may be students of color in roles not traditionally played by students of color, um, but not denying them the opportunity to play those roles uh, when they happen to be right, you know, because those roles hadn't been played by uh, people of color in the past. You know, a recent production of Annie, I remember back to when we did uh, Fiddler on the Roof. Um, and so making sure that we're doing our best to send that message. I will never for a moment um, pretend that we are doing that work as well as we could be or should be. We're always looking to do it better. Um, But knowing that that is something that we need to be thinking about, uh, at least that's on our minds when we're in the process of picking and discussing the shows. And and similarly, it also rules out some shows for us. Um, You know, an example that, that we've talked about many times you know, uh, between the two of us when talking about shows, and this comes up a lot when kids want to suggest shows, boy, do I love the music and the story for the musical Once on This Island. It's um, one of the greatest musicals there is. It's incredible. Uh, but that is the story, um, you know, about the experience of what it is walking around with brown skin. Yeah. Um, and, and in this particular story, uh, the difference between walking around in light brown skin versus dark brown skin. There, as you were talking earlier about adaptations for younger audiences, there's uh, a Once on This Island Junior edition that says, "Hey, if you don't have the you know the cast makeup for this show, here's an ad- adaptation where the story is in fact about class. It's about money. It's about haves and haves and have-nots." And my feeling is very strongly that the music is certainly written to be um, evocative of its setting, which is on a Caribbean island. And it is, in fact, very much the story of um, people of color. Yeah. And it is not, in fact, the same story if it's just about rich and poor, um, you know, because the, the story is actually about generational um, racism um, as opposed to economic uh, you know, uh, inequality, which could theoretically get erased in the course of one generation. And then, you know, it's, it's forgotten about. Um, it's an important story. It's an important attribute um, when we're picking it. Um, goodness knows that it's a, a sensitive subject and, and one that we're always looking to be better educated on, um, you know, you and I as, as white men, um, knowing that we don't have in our own bones 
the experience of what it is to be a person of color in this world. Um, so we're always looking to further educate ourselves and, and further inform our choices when we're uh, picking shows. So, yeah. Um, so, so I have a question for you that, uh, that actually has been brought up to me a couple times by some coming members and parents, uh, in terms of finances, right? So we don't talk about finances for the company so openly, but when, when you're looking at show and you're picking a show, do you think about like how, how much money it's going to cost to put on? Does, does that cross your mind at all, Joey? Sure. Sometimes. I mean, there are some shows, uh, for example, we've never done beauty and the beast. I mean, my gosh, what an obvious choice, what a, you know, what a guaranteed hit. Everybody loves that. Um, it's a really design heavy show. If you're going to do it the way that your audience is kind of expecting, uh, which huh. isn't, isn't to say that that's the only way you would ever have to do it. But if, if you want to do it that way, the costumes are really important and they're really difficult and there's stage magic. Um, there's many different sets and settings that happen in that show. So in addition to the financial cost, there's also a workload cost that we would be putting on our designers that we take very seriously when, when we're considering it. Um, you know, we have a lot of volunteers who do a lot of the work specifically in things like costumes. Um, and so not over promising on our designers behalf that, oh yeah, we'll do this show. It's going to look this way. It's going to be done, you know, on the financial budgets that we've got to work with at running to places, figure it out. Won't you? Um, we try to be really aware of our human resources as well as our financial resources. Right. When you and I are uh, planning out a full season, right? Let's say you have a couple shows. We typically have five in a season at this point. You know, uh, we'll often think about like who in our team is this going to put the most train on, right? Is this a choreography difficult show? Is this a costume difficult show? Is this going to be really hard for me as a music director? Like, and so if this one's really hard for me, maybe the next one, the music's pretty easy, but the costumes are really hard. So the next one's very choreographed you know, choreographically heavy, but the costumes are, you know, modern day, you know, high school piece of cake. Right. Um, and so that's, that's part of the season long budgeting <laughs> that we always put in our mind. Right. You know, it's, it would be fun to do Beauty and the Beast back to back with Shrek back to back with Susical. Boy, those are some great shows, but we're, we're going to have some, some pretty fatigued design team members if we were to do a season quite like that. Yeah. So pick pick your next favorite item on on your list. What's another important thing that that people probably don't think about but that we always have to keep in mind when we're selecting shows uh for running to places or or for high school or anywhere else for that matter. So so this is, you know, uh everything we've discussed so far is super important, lots of important, but there's kind of for me this X factor at the end which I put into these words are Will my students be able to relate to slash understand the content matter? AKA, are they going to like it? Yeah. <laughs> Does that, oh, that matters? Oh, that's a good point. <laughs> a little bit. Are they going to want to do the show? Yeah. Right. I mean, do they care about the characters? Do yeah. they care about the plot? Is this a story we want to tell as, as artists in charge? Is it student, you know, when you have a character... You know, when you have when you have a student that's that is playing a character fighting for something that student might actually believe in, you get a better performance. 
you know, I, and this is another side of that coin about why we might not pick some of these classic, beautiful shows. I have a, I have a term for them that I like to use, which is I call them shelf shows, (laughs) which are shows we say, thank you very much for what you've done for our world of musical theater. Thank you for your service. Thank you for your service. And we put them on a shelf where they can collect a little bit dust and we don't have to look at them too often. Yeah, but if they come across the, you know, the playlist on Spotify of Broadway classics, we can go, oh, yeah, that is a good song. But eh, maybe we're not doing that show. Yeah, man, I love a, I love a good, oh, what a beautiful morning just as much as the next guy. Um, you know, but but some of these older shows are, are getting to the points where especially high school or middle school students, they don't care or or get it as much i don't you know what I mean? dude i don't know if oklahoma's the hill you want to die on for that example my i went to pajama game which is a show i could do without you know steam heat's fun and all but oklahoma it's got its flaws you know but sure sure <laughs> or, or or a classic grease oh oh jeremy why would you even get me started there wait knew what Joe, you do you have any do. opinions about grease have I never shared this with you, Jeremiah Pletter? Tell yeah, me. No, this is this is my favorite example, actually. You know, because um, in addition to talking about why we would pick certain shows, there's certainly some shows that are just on our never gonna do list, and Greece is the poster child for it. Um, you know, it's it's an American classic, and it's about teenagers, kinda. Um, you know, but a little bit once, kind of, yeah. You know, thirty year old teenagers, uh, according to the movie. You know, but. It's a show at the end of the day. So while on the one hand, it seems like it's going to be a show that students are going to want to do and and relate to, and the music's fun and all that, but even if you get past the glorification of drinking and smoking and just flat-out rudeness and just, you know, bad people, um, you get to the end of the show, and what is the moral of the story? What is the lesson we have learned Sandy, it is worth abandoning your entire identity if it makes the boy like you. The end. Um, you know, the only one that I would argue, uh, you know, is, is kind of up there, which is, even though it's a sentimental favorite, because I did it in middle school, my gosh, uh, is Annie Get Your Gun, where at the end, Annie Oakley throws the shooting match so Frank Butler will like her. It's the same message as Grease, but with more racism built in throughout Um, gotta love it yeah not so much um so yeah it's it always kind of amazes me the shows uh that people are willing to do um you know but not not others i i remember many years ago season one as a matter of fact you were there at the time jeremy we did a a that i was dan an actor back then it's true you were and, and you were fabulous as the the team manager in that one Um, Mm -hmm. but I remember having a conversation with somebody, um, who, whose child attended a school where they performed the musical Grease. Um, and to the best of my knowledge, they didn't have any objections to that. Um, but she decided that she was not going to have her daughter participate, uh, in any show that had damn in the title. Uh, it's a step too far. It was, it was, you know, morally reprehensible despite the fact that the plot of the story is in fact a man who resists temptation from the devil himself in order to remain faithful to his wife, you know, okay, so sure. Not a, not a message we want the kids exposed to there, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so, 
I mean, one of my challenges that I give, you know, to anybody who's picking a show is go beyond what you think you know. Go beyond the shows you definitely know and look at, like, the actual messages and actual content of the show. Because, if I mean, if you ask any any high school, in my opinion, any high school in America, pretty much, if they'd rather do, you know, Grease or Rent... You know, Rent's going to win every time. And and at first thought, you know, oh, it's, you know, going to talk about this, going to talk about this a little bit. But it's a show about love and it's a show about family. It's a show about belonging, right? And it's, These and are the it's kind a show of about consequences, mm. you know, that, that there are difficult, um, you know, topics covered in a show like Rent. And yet there are consequences where there's, you know, drug use and abuse, but oh my gosh, it's not without its consequences. Right. Um, so, so yeah. Um, all right. It's time for us to take intermission, which is what I just decided we're calling the halfway point of our show. Thank you for underscoring that. Um, it's time for us to talk about one of our sponsors. Now we're actually not actually getting sponsorship, you know, money for this uh, sponsor, podcast. Sponsor, sponsor. Um, but Joey but- and I listen to so many podcasts, and when making this, the one thing we wanted to do most of all was read sponsors. I mean, and so we cannot wait. We yeah, because you. I don't think it is a podcast if if you don't have you know a break in the middle. Now we're Agreed. still not we're not talking about memory foam mattresses or you know meal home delivery services. But if you want to um, sponsor us, let us know. We oh, are actually, we are available. Blue Apron. We are available. Hit us up, Casper. Um, I just want to give a shout out to one of our longest standing and most faithful uh, sponsors, and that is my favorite ice cream shop and yours, Purity Ice Cream. Um, Woo, Purity Ice Cream, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how many people know this. Some people, I guarantee, discover it by accident when on the Saturday of a Running to Places production, they go to get themselves a simple ice cream cone and wonder why uh, it takes an unusually long period of time. Well, it's because the entire uh, cast and crew of a Running to Places show on a Saturday night heads over to Purity Ice Cream, has for years, every single production, every single Saturday. And my gosh, they are so good to us uh, when we show up en masse to do that. Um, You know, Purity has been uh, sponsoring Running to Places at the highest level for as long as I can remember, from the very beginning, really. Um, You know, and and what's always kind of fun is that we're always happy to uh, kind of put them in the, the winter show slot. They don't have a lot of trouble selling ice cream in the summertime. (laughs) <laughs> it's great to remind folks during the winter time that Purity is open all year round, of course, when global circumstances permit. Um, you know, they got soups, they got brunch, they got all this good stuff. If you have not checked it out, my gosh, it's good. We got to get the chimes. Ding, ding, ding. Intermission's about to end. Welcome back to the R2 podcast. We didn't go anywhere. We just pretended. Um, So, Jeremy, I thought uh, we could close out the show just talking a little bit about some of our favorite R2P mishaps, near mishaps, good saves. You know, there's some some good crunchy stuff in there that people may not know ever happened. Um, I'm going to start off with one of my favorites, which was uh, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, which was 2010. 
a Was that a year? Ago. Did that happen? I, apparently so. I saw it written down somewhere on a stone tablet. Um, <laughs> so yeah, we did You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. Uh, I loved this show. It was an incredible six-person cast. Um, and it was, you know, with such great music. Um, and it it's just suitable for a jazz combo, right? You know, so there's piano, there's drums, there's upright bass. You are good to go. Opening number, you're a good man, Charlie Brown. Um, and the way the show is built, it's song and then scene and then song. But it's built like a comic strip. You know, there's there's little vignettes. It's not like it's one continuous story. So it's a little unrelated scene followed by an unrelated song, things like that. So it's uh, opening night. You're a good man, Charlie Brown. The six kids are up there singing and dancing and Snoopy's barking and the jazz combo's hot and it's great. Halfway through the opening number, it occurs to me that I'm really only hearing the drums and the upright bass. And I look down in the pit and there's music director at that time, John Riss, and his hands are moving a mile a minute but there's no piano sound. The piano, the electric piano has died. It has gone poopy. It's gone. He's still playing, thinking that, hey, maybe if the power on this thing comes back on, I will have literally not missed a beat. And the kids in the meantime, I don't know if they've noticed at this point, but they're still cruising along doing this number. You're a good man, Charlie Brown. Bass and drums only. The opening number ends. They've made it through bass and drums. Uh, and, you know, you see some kind of like now John has gotten a chance to kind of like crawl around the back. He's playing with the plug. Did it just come loose? He's testing it. Nope. We got no piano. Uh, and so at this point, we're starting to realize that there's just a couple of scenes before the song called Schroeder. You know, Schroeder, now we're in trouble. <laughs> the one who plays the piano. And so it's a song that Lucy sings to Schroeder. He's there playing essentially Moonlight Sonata. And she sings this song about how much she loves how he plays the piano. And so he's there playing Moonlight Sonata and she's going, do you know something, Schroeder? And she sings about how she loves how he plays the piano. Well, we're about to have a song with no piano. Um, and so when uh, the, the two kids who are, who are uh, you know, playing that role, Sophie Potter and Elias Spector Zabuski, uh, are up there playing Lucy and Schroeder, they realize there ain't going to be no piano for this song. And spontaneously, the two of them just psychically agreed, we are now making this a song that is sung a cappella about a boy who is refusing to play the piano. So he's supposed to be playing and she's singing about, I love how you play the piano. He folds his arms. She leans in closer. He turns around. Um, and the two of them just spontaneously restaged the entire song. And she sang it perfectly on key the entire time with no piano. And they just redefined what the song was. In the meantime, there's a grand piano offstage right at the State Theater where we were doing this. The production manager goes back, unlocks the piano, sets up a, a microphone. Unbeknownst to the actors, this is all happening literally behind the scenes. Thank goodness, because Snoopy is about to sing a song that really was going to require the piano. It can't be done a cappella. 
And there she is, Chantal Barley, brilliant performance as Snoopy, standing on top of her doghouse, getting ready to sing this song, knowing it's about to be a total train wreck without the piano. And she opens her mouth to take this flying leap. And what comes through the speakers, but a newly amplified grand piano from off stage, and the show goes on without a hitch. And I guarantee you, most of the audience had no idea that anything had gone awry at all. It was one of the most impressive things I've ever seen on stage. And I was just so proud of those kids. Um, and it was such a brilliant indication of what live theater can be and, and what it can do. Um, and yeah, man, that was, a, that was quite a ride. Yeah. I mean, one of the, you know, in, in film and TV, you can do a second take in live theater. You got to work with what you're given right there. That's why improvisation and the whole philosophy of yes. And is so critical. So I'm going to – you reminded me actually by bringing up Damn Yankees season yeah. one. Uh, reminded me of a, let's say, oh. hilarious oh. story uh, that involved uh, myself I know where this is going. I know where this and, is going. And my great friend Cole Tucker. The, uh, the lovely and talented and brilliant and hilarious. One of, the, one of the finest comedians, nicest guys to ever come through R2P. Forgiving. Forgiving, lovely, <laughs> lovely man. Um, so, damn Yankees, right? As we mentioned before, it's a it's a baseball show, right? You know, we're, we're playing baseball out of the show. We're talking about baseball out of the show, and we decide. And you know, you, you got to have batography, right? You got to take your baseball bats, and you got to s- jump over them and spin around them and swing them over your head. Use them like a baton, right? You know. It's it's fun. It's cool. You know, it looks great to the audience. So, uh, one of the performances, I don't remember which one. I'm uh, I'm swinging the bat over my head, and I and I feel a little resistance, and I realize <laughs> that uh, my bat has made contact with the wrist and arm of one Cole Tucker. I'm for legal reasons. I don't know if we should continue this story, but oh, what the heck? Go for it. Um, statute of limitations. And so I realize it happens. Cole realized we're not really sure, but you know, the show must go on. That's, that's what, that's what we say. And so we kept going and what we realized is just like in Joey's story, that the next thing that's about to happen is kind of more important than the last thing that just happened, (laughs) which is Cole is about to do two throws of other actors in a row. Like dance lifts, you're talking. Dance lifts, where he lifts and throws. I know I'm doing the gesture to, to Joey here, and nobody can see this because it's an audio venue. But, you know, <laughs> life goes on. Um, and uh, he does both of them like a champ with a bit of a grimace on his face. We finish the number, run off stage. Uh, one of the uh, cast members' mother happened to be one of our lovely medical professionals. Uh, runs backstage and goes, oh yeah, your wrist is definitely broken. Without a question, 100% broken. So you're saying that you took a baseball bat and broke an actor's wrist on stage during a performance. That is exactly what I'm saying. Cole and I, still friends. <laughs> like I said, forgiving man. Forgiving man, we we got to work together Again, in urine town years later, and I see him oh, around yeah. Ithaca all the time. Yeah, he is a good man. But Just yeah, like that, was a, that, was a, that was a moment in my life back season one of R2P. Indeed. I, 
I'm a little bit hesitant to bring it up because I've never heard one way or the other whether the, the subject of the story is okay with it being shared, but it, it's, it was 2009. Do you know the Once Upon a Mattress story that I'm thinking of? Oh, yes. I know the Once Upon a Mattress story you're thinking of, and I think she's okay with it being told. It was 2009, and we were doing Once Upon a Mattress. We were doing it at Ithaca High School Culp Auditorium stage. Mm. And a young Sarah Beckwith, fabulous, fabulous kid in every way, fabulous grown-up. One of the R2P greats, man. Absolutely. Uh, So she's playing the minstrel. She's a ninth grader at the time, remarkably. Wow, really? Uh, Yeah, yeah. Uh, And some thoughtless director, I will not name names. What what an idiot. (laughs) Had her, uh, I mean, this is in the first minute of the show. She starts the show, it's the the prologue, the very first thing going on. She's the narrator. She's, you know, the character's name is the minstrel. She's the, you know, the wandering musician with her lute. And she's the narrator. And she's singing a song about uh, the princess and the pea. That's what Once Upon a Mattress is based on. And she's like, you know this story. There's the delicate, dainty princess, and she's tested with the pea under her mattress. And that's a really lovely song that sets up the comedy for the rest of the show. The fact that, you know, the princess, like, grew up in a swamp, and and, and she's, like, tough and loud and outspoken and funny. Comedy. Not at all what, what we're expecting from the fairy tale. So there's Sarah. And she has to cross the stage because some fool director told her to walk while she's singing across the edge of the stage, essentially in a blackout, with the exception of a blinding spotlight in her eyes. Now, for those of you who are very familiar with Ithaca High School's Culp Auditorium, there is a very subtle point that the edge of the stage comes to. It's not flat straight across. It's a very shallow V point. So if you're walking along the edge of the stage and maybe you're not so familiar with the exact geometry of it, you might not realize that it takes uh, like a 10, 15 degree right-hand turn and starts angling back. So there she is and she's singing the song. And you know what? We can probably cut in right here and play a clip from it. Um, so yeah, it's, it goes a little something like this. she goes. I hate to admit it, but I never get tired of listening to that. Oh my God. So exactly what you think just happened has just happened. Um, Let's play it one more time. And this time I want you to listen very carefully to the sound of the lute slapping on the ground. And if you listen even more carefully, you will hear the distinctive voice of a parent who is in the audience a few rows back from where Sarah was, who in his former life had been a professional stage manager, so he knew from stage mishap protocols, and you can listen to him say, are you okay?
you can talk maybe about this, Jeremy, make sure I'm using the right terms. It happens in the music where it could not have been comedically timed better because it, is, is it a fermata? Is that what you would fermata, call Fermata, you moment? got it right, Joey. Look can at you, exp- you. Can you explain what a fermata is to the folks at home? Yeah, so a, a fermata is essentially a hold in the music, right? Yeah. This is where the entire pit orchestra, right, is not playing anything. They're sitting there. They're waiting with bated breath. The next thing that's supposed to happen in the show is Sarah starts singing again. So no one is going to do anything until she starts singing. So she can hold for as long and dramatically as she wants. Absolutely. It's totally in the actor's control at that moment. What is remarkable is that she just happened to fall off the stage at exactly the moment of that fermata, and then she holds... And so she literally doesn't miss a beat and continues singing and goes on to have the best performance of her life because she was so relaxed at that point because what else could happen? She's already fallen off the stage. Let's just listen to it one more time. Here we go. Seriously, never get tired. <laughs> she was fine. It's, she was fine. I mean, if by you the were, way. if you were in the like, if you were in the fifth, sixth, seventh row, you might have not even noticed it happened. Well, except for the fact that her parents were in the fifth, sixth, or seventh row, yeah, and okay, they noticed. Fair. They were right yeah, there. Yeah, that's reasonable. And I've got to say, I've never been more impressed with two human beings in my life because they just watched their daughter fall off the stage in front of their very eyes. They didn't say anything. They didn't get up. They didn't interrupt the performance. They just trusted that she was going to be fine and could handle it. She climbs back up onto the stage and continues the show. Whether well, or not, if you're gonna, yeah, if you're gonna pick two parents to be comfortable with their daughter falling, I think two professional gymnasts. Oh, that's right. They were like gymnastics coaches. Yeah, I think that might be the uh, optimal optimal version of that story. All right, before we peace out of here. Uh, it would not be a complete R2 podcast if we didn't give the folks at home some recommendations, some things that maybe they've never heard of or thought to listen to in quite a while. Jeremy, what's on your mind? What's on your plate? What should the folks check out? So uh, one of my uh, recommendations I give to people a lot um, is a show called City of Angels. Oh, tell us about that. Um, not such a great, well-known show, but one of the reasons that I love recommending it so much is because it's pure jazz. Oof. If you like jazz, if you like some just good swing and music, this is a show for you. Now, to be clear, uh, this is not based, this has nothing to do with the Meg Ryan movie of the same title. People do not get it confused. Yeah, I get that a lot. No, it has nothing to do with that. Get that out of your mind immediately. Um, no, City of Angels, and it has, so the swing and music, the overture has this crazy cool vocal quartet that sings along in the overture, which is, you know, scatting, which is very rare to see in a musical. Uh, but the plot itself is absolutely brilliant. It's about this uh, guy who writes graphic novels. Um, and so he writes these, he writes this mystery, mystery novels. novels. Mystery novels. Yeah, mystery Film novels. Noir yeah, like, style novels. That's what it is. Um, and so he writes it kind of vaguely about the people in his life. 
Um, and over the course of the show, you see the actors and the actresses who play his family, friends, in real life also will play the characters in his novels. Um, and so we get the lines start to blur a little bit between reality and fiction. And the only person that doesn't play the same is himself, who is the main character of his novel, is played by another actor, because then you get some incredible moments where they get to argue, uh, bringing one of the, my favorite songs in the show, uh, You're Nothing Without Me, uh, an incredible song where they argue about, you know, the writer saying, I wrote you, you wouldn't exist if I, if I didn't write you. And the character is saying, well, nobody even knows who you are. I'm the famous one. You know, without without me, you'd be be nothing. Let's and check out a ah, brilliant. Let's check out a clip from "You're Nothing Without Me" from City of Angels. Broads in bed are bored. Go home and soak your dentures. Your pen is no match for my sword. You're nothing without me. I know. So good. Oh, brilliant. Great harmony. And it. just this show has some of the most clever lyrics. Mm. Some, so what about you, Joe? You got a good recommendation for this? My thing? recommendation, uh, speaking of movies that really are not related uh, to the musicals of the same name, <laughs> I got to talk about Titanic. Um, this is a fabulous musical. It did not have... Uh, you know, the longest life on, on Broadway. Um, it does not feature Rose or Jack. There is no what? diamond. No? No one is, you know, hogging all the space on a floating door at the end. Um, oh. But it does have a lot in common with the movie in that it's about a big boat that hits an iceberg. Spoiler alert. Um, you know, this was a show that uh, I directed at Ithaca High School back in 2006, I think. Yeah, it was 2006. Um, uh, among the many, many fabulous people who are in it uh, is a young Sam Harris, now of ex-ambassador fame. Who I've heard of them. He played uh, a coal-shoveling, you know, worker down in the, the, the belly of the beast in, in Titanic. He was fabulous. Stroke. It's exactly one of the stokers. Uh, and so, you know, so my gosh, what a star turn he had. But similar to what we were talking about earlier uh, in the show, this is a show that features opportunities for a million people. That happened to be a year where at Ithaca High School, there were like 25 graduating seniors, each more fabulous than the next. And, and um, we just needed to figure out something to do with all of them. Um, Titanic, the musical, is a fabulous ensemble show. Um, you know, there are stories about the people in first class and, you know, down in steerage. Um, you know, uh, these women uh, dreaming of a better life in America. Um, 
so many beautiful love stories and, you know, stories about the owner of the White Star uh, cruise line and the captain of the ship and the designer of the ship getting into this huge argument toward the end of the second act, um, you know, debating whose fault it was, you know, the guy who designed this faulty boat or the guy who is driving it maybe too fast, um, you know, or the owner who is putting pressure on him to break all the speed records. Um, so let's one of the best songs in the show. Let's check out a piece of that one right now. Who had to keep all the millionaires happy? How dare you, Smith? I will not stand here indicted. Who ignored warnings of icebergs when sighted? Who, sir, refused to extend up the bulkheads? You, sir, to give the first class bigger staterooms? And who undermined the position of captain? And who took a course to far north for the season? And who kept insisting we land ever sooner? And who should have imposed on our house and gorgeous and bargain it? So obviously, uh, this show does not end happily for most. You know, you walk in knowing <laughs> how it's going to end. And, you know, I gotta, I love shows like that. I mean, for example, you go see Hamlet, you know how it's going to end. High body count. Right. You know, Romeo and Juliet. It, seriously, they tell you right in the beginning what's going to yeah. happen. Um, and what I think is so amazing is when a show uh, that you know how it ends still grips you and then ripped your heart out yeah. by the end of it because um, it's caused you to care so deeply about the characters, um, not despite knowing the ending, but sometimes because you know what's going to happen to them and you see them be so hopeful for so much of it. Um, and it, it magnifies the, the emotion tenfold. For me, Titanic, the, the best part is that opening number. Mm. Right. I mean, it rivals into the woods in one of those humongous, massive four part opening numbers where you get to meet all these characters. Oh, and you just, oh, glorious vocals. One of my favorites. Yeah. So check out Titanic and City of Angels. Uh, and those are our recommendations for this episode. Well, I think that's all the time we've got for this edition of the R2 podcast. Hope everybody is out there staying safe, staying sane, um, and keeping your hands clean and your chins up. Hands clean, chin up, bright eyed, bushy tailed. <laughs> and we'll catch you on the flip side. Bye. Bye, team. <laughs>